Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 18, 1984, by George Orwell. As we grasp at victory, there is a cancer, an evil tumor, growing, spreading. In our midst. Shout! Shout! Shout out his name! to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we will take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we have both read and determine whether or not it's worthy of its reputation and sometimes determine whether or not we really should be teaching it in the classroom. As always, I'm Tom Panneries, one of your co-hosts. My other co-host with me is the O'Brien to my Winston. Wow. Please welcome Stella. I'm not really sure what to say about that, but really, what other characters could you like me to? Yeah, I, I'm a little horrified because moments before, you basically threatened to throw me into room 101. We're podcasting in room 101. Yeah, what a horrifying thought. You know, when you tweeted that, I thought, wow, that poor guy, he's got a, he's got a podcast in his little learning cottage. And then mm-hmm. I said, wait a minute, 101's that terrible place you go to or your worst fears are imagined. 
I love how you call it a learning cottage. We just call it a po- the pod. <laughs> that sounds like, I don't know, bad stuff's about to happen to you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> little trivia, I looked this up. Do you know where the term Room 101 came from, from that book? From the book? Well. Orwell, when he was, I don't remember where he was working, but he was working for a company or a, or a officer publication or something. And Room 101 was the room where they would have, like, long and tedious meetings. So he named the torture room in 1984 after this room where he was forced to sit through long and tedious meetings. As somebody who is a teacher, and you're a teacher, and we both sat through a lot of long and tedious meetings, Mm -hmm. I can appreciate that. (laughs) Yes, uh, those, yes, meetings are awful, and... uh... Nine out of ten times, they're not worth it. But we're not um, we're not here, we're not here to <laughs> yeah, talk know, about meetings. Um, thank God, uh, we are here to talk about George Orwell's 1949 novel, 1984, which is, I believe, I might have somewhere in one of my notes uh, listed it as like one of the vanguard of dystopian science fiction novels, because um, it is probably one of like the top two or three most influential dystopian science fiction novels uh, of the 20th century. So what we're going to do is what we usually do is, which is uh, go through a synopsis of the book and Stella and I are going to have a discussion on its themes and various characters and, and all of the uh, really, and, and, and have a discussion on its literary influence as well as its uh, sociological influence. But what we usually do uh, before we even get to that is talk about what our history with the book is. And since I'm leading this, I'm going to let you go first with the, with that. So what is your history with 1984? This book is on my Rory's reading list, my Rory Gilmore reading list. And so I read it a couple years ago, I recall. And I, well, I, I guess I won't <laughs> say, I'll, I'll leave the, the rest for that. But yeah, it was, so it was a recent read, but it wasn't recent enough that I couldn't reread it for this show. I had heard of this in the, probably in the context of, um, of dystopian literature in 10th grade English class when we read Fahrenheit 451. So I think my English teacher probably mentioned this and mentioned um, Brave New World, maybe something else. Uh, But I'd never read it up until my first semester of college where I took politics, um, political science 101. And uh, it was assigned to me and I read it. And I remember uh, at the time I liked it. I, I don't know if it had like a profound effect on me back in 1990, the fall of 1995. Uh, freshman year is kind of a weird blur for me for many reasons beyond just academics. And I didn't read it again until about probably like 2009, 2010 when I first taught it to uh, a group of advanced seniors, and I use the term advanced lightly, uh, in that English class, because in at least in Virginia, the SOLs for English are dictate that most of your reading for 12th grade is going to be in British literature. So mm. um, 1984 does get a lot of play in, in 12th grade English, and uh, it is actually on the uh, AP curriculum for the high school and the class that I'm currently teaching. So I, I reread it recently, um, uh, just a couple of months ago. Uh, and, and yeah, so, and, and I've, I've actually, you know, just 
gotten more and more out of it as I have, but I'll get into that when we do our critical review of the book. Um, so as not to, uh, not to give it all away at once. So, um, what I'm going to do is what we usually do in this section. I'm going to talk about the context of the book and the real life history of the author. Um, I'm not going to go too far deep into Orwell's life, um, at least his general life, because, uh, for a couple of reasons, one, he has works beyond just 1984. Um, one of which may pop up in this podcast at some point, which is Animal Farm. Uh, what I am going to do, and I'm going to kind of cheat here, is I'm actually going to read. I have the Signet Classic ver- paperback version in front of me, which has seen better days. It has this really cool cover where it is just an eye, like the the the, the cover is white, but on the all the way justified to the right hand side is the pupil and a blue iris that is staring at you and George Orwell is in blue and 1984 is red in the middle of the pupil. It's a really, really great, nice laid out cover that's kind of like minimalist in a way. I, I really, really like it. Anyway, open up the cover and there's a bio of Orwell right there on the first page and it's a pretty succinct bio of his life and I actually like how it's written. So I'm going to read this, but then I'm going to get into a little bit of the history of 1984, the book and his writing it. So, George Orwell was the pseudonym of Eric Blair. He was born in 1903, and he died in 1950. Uh, He was born in Bengal and educated at Eton. After service with the Indian Imperial Palace... Indian Imperial Police in Burma, he returned to Europe to earn his living penning novels and essays. He was essentially a political writer who focused his attention on his own times, a man of intense feelings and fierce hates. An opposite an opponent of totalitarianism, he served in the loyalist forces in the Spanish Civil War. He was critical of communism, but considered himself a socialist. He hated intellectuals, although he was a literary critic. He despised Kant, lying, and cruelty in life and in literature. Upon his death, he left behind a growing reputation for greatness and a substantial body of work that bore out his conviction that modern man was inadequate to cope with the demands of his history. All this from a bio... In, I know. Because it's pretty, so that's why I thought it was pretty clever. Um, now, Orwell conceived uh, the idea of 1984 in the mid 1940s. In fact, the idea uh, for the super states that we'll see in the novel, which are called Oceania, uh, East Asia, mm-hmm. and Eurasia, come from talk at the Tehran conference uh, in, I believe it was 1943, between FDR, Churchill, and Stalin, where they discussed the idea of the world being divided up under, quote, spheres of influence. That sparked ideas for the novel, but he did not begin writing the novel in earnest until 1947, when he was on the Scottish island of Jura, J-U-R-A. I don't know if there's a different way of pronouncing that. He'd finished the novel in late 1948, and he saw his publication in 1949. In fact, it's a pretty widely held belief that Orwell came up with the year of 1984 as the title by simply transposing the last two numbers of 1948. At the time, he had already had success with Animal Farm, which came out in 1945, and he was a sought-after author and journalist. He wrote a number of acclaimed essays, and he was part of the public political conversation through the late 1940s. In 47, Orwell was di- diagnosed with tuberculosis, which is one of the primary reasons he split his time between London and Scotland while writing 1984, and this, of course, would lead to his death in 1950. Not splitting the time, but the tuberculosis. The novel itself was a huge hit right away. It received a huge amount of acclaim, both critically and commercially. 
Interestingly, the novel also drew comparisons to another of the vanguard of dystopian literature. See, I knew I put that phrase somewhere. Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. And this is a little bit uh, from Wikipedia, source of all things highly questionable. Um, (laughs) In the decades since the publication of 1984, there have been numerous comparisons to Huxley's novel Brave New World, which had been published 17 years earlier in 1932. They are both predictions of societies dominated by a central government and are both based on extensions of the trends of their times. However, members of the ruling class of 1984 use brutal force, torture, and mind control to keep individuals in line, but rulers in Brave New World keep citizens in line by addictive drugs and pleasure distractions. In October 1949, after reading 1984, Huxley sent a letter to Orwell and wrote that it would be more efficient for rulers to stay in power by the softer touch, by allowing citizens to self-seek pleasure to control them rather than brute force and allow a false sense of freedom. Huxley said, quote, Within the next generation, I believe that the world's rulers will discover that infant conditioning and narco-hypnosis are more efficient as instruments of government than clubs and prisons, and that the lust for power can be just as completely satisfied by suggesting people into loving their servitude as by flogging and kicking them into obedience. Now, there have uh, been adaptations and uses of 1984 in popular culture. Uh, There have been a couple of film adaptations Uh, One in 1956, starring Edmund O'Brien as Winston Smith. Uh, In 1984, a film version was released. It starred John Hurt, uh, who most science fiction fans also know as uh, Kane from Alien. And if you don't know who Kane from Alien is, he's the guy that has the the thing coming out of his uh, chest. He played Winston. Richard Burton, uh, and this was his last role. Uh, Richard Burton's last role, Richard Burton, who, if I'm going to be honest, I always just knew Elizabeth Taylor's husband at one point, but he played O'Brien. Two times. Yeah, yeah, two (laughs) times. He divorced and got remarried. And he played played Petruchio in Their Taming of the Shrew, and I believe he played Antony in in Cleopatra. That is correct. Okay. Um, It's been a very, very long time since I've seen any of Cleopatra. Anyway, so, like, he played O'Brien. I've seen it. It's a decent adaptation. I mean, if you want, it's kind of like a by-the-numbers adaptation, and they do a pretty decent job with it as far as you know, adaptations of a novel like this are concerned. Um, it should also be noted that Ridley Scott directed a very famous commercial for Apple's Macintosh computer that, di- that aired during the Super Bowl in 1984 and directly referenced Orwell's novel, 1984. Today we celebrate the first glorious anniversary of the information A garden of pure ideology, where each worker may bloom, secure from the pests of a computer will introduce Macintosh and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984 1984 has been also been influential in 
by the way, because it's made its way into our cultural lexicon. Uh, Wikipedia's got a halfway decent summary of this, so I'm going to go ahead and read this off. Uh, the adjective Orwellian connotes an attitude and a policy of control by propaganda, surveillance, misinformation, denial of truth, and manipulation of the past. In 1984, Orwell described a totalitarian government that controlled thought by controlling language, making certain ideas literally unthinkable. Several words and phrases from 1984 have entered the popular language. Newspeak is a simplified and obfuscatory language designed to make independent thought impossible. Doublethink means holding two contradictory beliefs simultaneously. The thought police are those who suppress all descending opinion. Prole feed is homogenized, manufactured, superficial literature, film, and music used to control indoctrinate the populace through docility. And Big Brother is a supreme dictator who watches everyone. It's not just a crappy reality television show. That's I'm adding to that. Finally, um, and like I said, this is this is a bit of a long um, history of 1984. But 1984 is one of those books that, at least in in this podcaster's opinion, really does have a place in our 20th century literary history and the cultural lexicon, as you've seen. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention how this book has been challenged or banned in various places over the years since its publication. In fact, it is on the American Library Association's list of banned and challenged classics. Um, here is a history of the censorship and attempted bans. And my two sources for this are the American Library Association's website. Um, every September, by the way, they run Banned Books Week, where they celebrate freedom of speech and freedom of the press and encourage you to go out and find a book that has been banned or challenged and read it. Uh, they also publish uh, their like top 10 banned books for the last year or whatever. Um, a lot of times children's books end up on there, and there's all sorts of reasons. Now, Banned and Challenged Classics include stuff like The Catcher in the Ride, To Kill a Mockingbird, Huck Finn, The Great Gatsby, and 1984. My other source of this is the book, um, which was published, I believe, in 1988, called Hundred Banned Books, Censorship Histories of World Literature, which is a really, really fun book that I've, I've had for years. So, 1984 has been challenged or banned in a number of school districts since its publication in 1949, especially during the height of the Cold War in the 60s, when the United States was in an ideological battle with its totalitarian, quote, communist Soviet Union. However, most of the challenges to the book's inclusion in the classroom have more to, have just as much to do with explicit context as it does the politics. Very often, protests have arisen because of the sexually explicit portions of the book, and in fact, a number of school districts have actually removed the book over the years for both political and explicit content reasons. Here are a few examples of objections to the book, efforts to censor it, and actual removal. In 1963, the John Birch Society condemned the book because it's, quote, study of communism. A survey conducted by Lee Burris, the writer of the book Celebrating Censored Books in the 1960s, had comments of protests regarding 1984's content, such as, quote, it shows communism in a favorable light, end quote, and that, quote, socialistic state shows utopia which is wrong. 
that's a direct quote. And I'm like, that. it took me a while to like realize there's something missing from that sentence. Anyway, in one case in Renschel, Minnesota, a teacher refused to remove 1984 from his reading list and was fired for it. He was later reinstated, however, after his arguments that, quote, the book illustrates what happened in a dystopian society made sense to the school board, etc. The authors of 100 Band Books also cite 1984's role in what would be called the textbook battles of the 1960s, were in several books such as McKinley Cantor's Andersonville, uh, the aforementioned Brave New World, and John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, were taken off reading lists because of obscenity found within, as well as what was perceived as the book's, quote, political ideas, or because the authors had once belonged to groups cited by the House Un-American Activities Committee. The most recent challenge, at least according to the ALA, was in 1981, when a Baptist minister in Sneeds, Florida, attempted to have the book banned from school use on numerous occasions, saying it was pro-communist and sexually explicit. He was unsuccessful. All right. So, anything to add before we go into full-on plot synopsis land? Nope. All right, so let's strap in. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. So begins our story, and right away we meet our protagonist, Winston Smith, who lives in what was then the future year of 1984, in what was once known as London, but is now referred to as Airstrip 1, part of a massive super country named Oceania, that consists of both North and South America, the British Isles, Iceland, Australia, and New Zealand, and Southern Africa. Winston is a member of the class of people referred to as the Outer Party, and his job is as an editor is the, at the Ministry of Truth, or Mini-True, in the jargon of the novel and the society, which is called Newspeak. Ironically, the job that Winston has at the Ministry of Truth is to conceal the truth, as this is not an objective journalistic endeavor, but Oceania's, Oceania's propaganda department. Winston lives a life that is very meager, as do many people in Airstrip 1, especially those among his class. He lives in a one-room apartment, or flat, as the Brits call them. Hi, Andy. Uh, And his diet consists of rations that the government provides, including Victory Gin, which is the drink that is consumed by a large number of people in the party. Also in his apartment is a telescreen that Winston Winston can watch, but that can also watch Winston, something very important for the government to keep control over the citizenry, which they do using the Thought Police, who will arrest and imprison anyone who they suspect to be guilty of thought crime. And that is harboring any ill thoughts or feelings toward the government or its leader, Big Brother. In addition, children are raised to inform on their parents if they suspect anything wrong, and they are indoctrinated from a very early age into the philosophies of Big Brother and Oceana's ruling class, the Inner Party. Uh, this is referred to as, it's basically called English Socialism, which in Newspeak is called INGSOC, I-N-G-S-O-C. Big Brother appears on a regular basis during a daily broadcast, which also includes a something called the Two Minutes Hate, a daily ritual where, after watching various news announcements, including updates on Oceania's constant ongoing war with either Eurasia or East Asia, this changes at various points, but it's not important because what is important is that whomever we are at war with is the country we have always been at war with. Uh, Winston and his workers, after all this, are showing a 
shown a picture of Emmanuel Goldstein, traitor to the country and current leader of a supposed underground resistance or opposition group called the Brotherhood. Although Winston seems to live the rather, well, happy life that the inner party requires of its outer party office drones, cracks begin to show. He takes a keen interest in items he is supposed to edit, as well as a photograph he is ordered to send down the memory hole. Uh, this is the term for the incinerator that basically symbolizes how once you throw something out, you're required to forget it ever existed. This includes news about a war hero that doesn't exist, a change in the chocolate ration that is a falsity, and a photograph that includes some supposed enemies of the state who are actually inter-party members at one time. Bewildered, Winston goes into the neighborhood of the city's lowest class, the Proles, which is short for proletariat, and purchases a journal. It's in this journal that he writes his secret thoughts condemning Big Brother. During this time, he also becomes infatuated with two people a woman with whom he works named Julia, and O'Brien, who is an inter-party member, whom Winston is convinced is secretly a member of the Brotherhood. Julia and Winston begin a sexual relationship, although she wears the sash of the Anti-Sex League. And it's interesting to note here, I guess, that Winston at one point was married uh, to a woman named Catherine, and the sex they were basically required by the state to have was kind of for procreation, but then she left him, and, well, neither of them loved one another anyway. Back to Winston and Julia, their affair begins by meeting one another out in a field, in the woods, in the outskirts of the city, but then he rents an apartment above the curio shop where he bought the journal. Soon enough, they are both approached by O'Brien, who reveals to them that Winston is right. He is a member of the Brotherhood, and the Brotherhood is a large but extremely secretive organization that knows the keys to overthrowing both Big Brother and the party. Winston and Julia swear their allegiance to the Brotherhood and are given a copy of the, the book The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism by Emmanuel Goldstein. They take it to the apartment where they have been here having their rendezvous, and Winston reads the book aloud to himself and Julia, and in it details all the inner workings of the party and its philosophy, including the party's main paradoxical slogans, war is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. It details the history of how the party in Oceania came to be, the advantage of the world's perpetual state of war, and how the key to overthrowing the party relies in the pearls, if, that is, they were ever to actually be ever properly educated. However, this does not lead to revolution. Instead, it leads to Winston and Julia's arrest. Mr. Charrington, who is the owner of the curio shop and from whom they were renting the apartment, is actually a member of the Thought Police, and they had been watching them the entire time. Winston and Julia are brought to the Ministry of Love, and they are interrogated for an unspecified amount of time. Here, Winston learns that O'Brien himself is behind his incarceration, and that the Brotherhood in Goldstein's book was a, lay a way to lure Winston into this trap. Winston is also in there with his neighbor, Parsons, whose children had turned him in. And Parsons is actually proud of this. O'Brien begins electroshock torture as well as other methods of torture by which he insists he can cure Winston of his infidelity against the state. Winston eventually confesses to whatever crime O'Brien tells him he has committed, but O'Brien won't let him go until he has betrayed Julia. This happens in room 101, where O'Brien uses Winston's greatest fear, rats. 
He straps a cage with a rat in it to Winston's face, and just as O'Brien is about to let the rat loose, Winston yells, Do it to Julia! With that betrayal, his re-education is over. Winston and Julia are both let back into society. They They encounter one another in a park and admit that they both betrayed each other during their imprisonment and their torture. Later, as Winston sits in a cafe and has a drink, he remembers something from his childhood, but pushes it out of his mind because it's a false memory. Then there is a news announcement about a decisive victory in the war. I'm going to read the last couple of paragraphs of the novel. Under the table, Winston's feet made convulsive movements. He had not stirred from his seat, but in his mind he was running, swiftly running. He was with the crowds outside, cheering himself deaf. He looked up again at the portrait of Big Brother, the colossus that bestrode the world, the rock against which the hordes of Asia dashed themselves in vain. He thought of how ten minutes ago, yes, only ten minutes, there had still been equivocation in his heart as he wondered whether the news from the front would be a victory or defeat. Ah, it was more than a Eurasian army that had perished. Much had changed in him since the first day in the Ministry of Love, but the final, indispensable healing change had never happened until this moment. The voice from the telescreen was pouring forth its tale of prisoners and booty and slaughter, but the shouting outside had died down a little. The waiters were turning back to their work. One of them approached with the gin bottle. Winston, sitting in a blissful dream, paid no attention as his glass was filled up. He was not running or cheering any longer. He was back in the ministry of love, with everything forgiven, his soul as white as snow. He was in the public dock, confessing everything, implicating everybody. He was walking down the white-tiled corridor with the feeling of walking in sunlight and an armed guard at his back. The long-hoped-for bullet was entering his brain. He gazed up at the enormous face. Forty years it had taken him to learn what kind of smile was hidden beneath the dark mustache. Oh, cruel, needless misunderstanding. A stubborn, self-willed exile from the loving breast. Two gin-scented tears trickled down the sides of his nose. But it was all right. Everything was all right. The struggle was finished. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Big Brother. And that is the end of the novel. So, as we always ask at this point and allow the host, the primary host for the episode, take a <laughs> breath or perhaps a drink of water. Sure. Yeah. Did you like this? Yes, with reservations. <laughs> I, and I can't remember, I think, what I thought about it, but actually... Maybe, you know, as I read it, I I may have also started thinking to myself, oh, yeah, I forgot that this was like this. Now, the one thing is I can't recall. I think I read Brave New World before I read this, Mm -hmm. and I really do not like Brave New World. So I think I was hesitant when I was beginning to read this because I thought, oh, no, here we go. We've got another situation like this. But I thought it I like it better than Brave New World. So I think there was that positive aspect, which was good because sometimes if I read a novel after another novel, the first novel colors the second one. So that was good. My with reservations is that I feel like I liked it less this time than I did the first time because the first time was as a casual reader, you know, trying to basically just knock it off my list and mm-hmm. not to say that I'm not 
I'm just skimming things, which I've done in the past. But, you know, if I really am not liking the book, but I'm just trying to get through it. But I did not do that. But this time, because I knew we were doing this and I knew I needed to understand what was going on and be able to have an intellectual conversation, I was really reading it with a thoughtful eye. And because of that, there were moments that I was slogging through and it was difficult to to get through. And it's not, it's not an uplifting novel either. I mean, the things that happen, I think, uh, oh, there's a question I forgot to write down in the document. But the fact that everyone is so not immune's not the right word, but desensitized to violence. You know, Winston's like just numb. walking down. And, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's just, it's hard. And then, of course, we'll, we'll get to it. But the Goldstein section is the worst. <laughs> and there was, you know, one of the sections I was reading three different times to, like, try to make sense of what was happening. It was basically going through the paradoxes and why they even exist. So I do enjoy it, but it's, um, I, I, I think I'm, I'm done with it now. After this, anyways, I'll be done with it. I don't think I'm going to read it again because unless, you know, years and years, because I I think my enjoyment will decrease even more and I just need a break from it. Okay. Um, I, I will totally agree with you about, about the Goldstein's book section. We'll get to, we'll get to that because that's one of the questions we're going to address. But yes, um, in fact, um, talking to my students and then talking to one of my friends who's also an English teacher who also teaches this book, like, I don't know one person who is like, yes, that's the best part of the novel. So we're kind of all across the board in agreement with that. But yeah, like I said, we'll, we'll get to that. The funny thing is I was trying to think about what my initial reaction to this was. And I think, I was kind of like that. Even though I was supposed to be studying it for a political science class, I was 18 at the time when I first read this, and I got a lot of it. But at the same time, like, I'm 18 in the mid-90s. There's, you know, it's a piece of science fiction to me. I'm also in my very first semester of college. So I'm not getting everything out of it that I probably could have had I read it maybe at a slightly later part of my college career or something. You know, I was still kind of getting those, you know, I'd I'd read plenty of literature by then because I went to high school. But, you know, I think in that first semester, first year of college, you're still getting a lot down as far as Mm. like how you should be reading literature and how you should be looking at literature because you're not having your hand held as much. Sure. And I was, and we were doing it through the point of view of political science. So, you know, that's where I think I got, I enjoyed it, but didn't get a ton out of it. The second time I remember, um, this was what, eight, nine years ago, feeling like I was prepping it for reading it to a group by then who had been like a class. And I can say this cause they've all graduated and they're probably pushing 30 by this point. Oh. Um, well they're not exactly, but they're, they're all in their twenties. Um, I was to a class who was like, like really just lazy about everything. And it was just one of those things where it's like you're advanced yet. I have to handhold you through. So it was a kind of a frustrating endeavor, even though I enjoyed the book. Mm-hmm. This time around, I actually got a lot more out of it. I I felt that I was really looking into and and thinking about okay, what can I grab out of this to discuss, you know? And I really have felt it's you know, and I felt its relevance to today, which is really really important for a novel like this. I mean, because there's there's science fiction novels that 
or science fiction stories that feel like um, that that have been written. In this case, this was written back in 1948. So this is, this novel's 1948, 1949. This novel's almost 70 years old, and yet it still feels very, very relevant today. Whereas you might have a novel from 60 years ago that's science fiction that feels almost like okay, now that's almost crossing into fantasy because it's kind of like quaint. It's like almost you know, it's like oh yeah, that's kind of cute the way that like this kind of 50, 60 science fiction was. But this this is really. Um, this is really, really relevant. It's not my favorite dystopian novel. That Honor Goes to Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, mm. which which is a couple of years after this. I think it's Fahrenheit 451 was like 50, 51, 52, I think. And I can kind of see Orwell's influence on Bradbury. but um, And I've never read Brave New World. It's in my pile, but I've never read it. But yeah, so that that's that's the reaction I've had. I mean, I've, I've come... I've actually had the opposite... More the more and more I read this, and the more and more I go back through and look at it, the more and more I really do appreciate what Orwell is doing here, and and the more the richer I feel this novel uh, has become for me. So it's kind of we both like it, but we're kind of heading in opposite directions. We sure are. I don't think this is something though that you need to read on a frequent basis. Mm-hmm. Like I could put this away for another decade and I'll be fine. You know, like like ten if I came back to this ten years from now or. Every few years, I will reread something I'm teaching because I just need to reread it like on its own as opposed to plan lessons around it. And this would be one of those where I can give this a, quite a number of years and I could teach this and teach this and teach this and read the bits and pieces we have to. And then I'll sit down into planning and I'll be like, okay, I think I need to reread 1984 in its entirety just because it's been a very long time and out of context from teaching it. So let's get into some of the uh, discussion questions. And I have to give a hat tip here because I actually posted something on Instagram, which was like pages of notes that I had. But um, I saw that. It was horrifying. But um, well, it was basically it was like me <clears throat> jotting down notes. And I, and I do that for just about every episode, even like no matter who picks the book, like I'll take the questions we have and I'll start writing notes and answers so that I, you know, sound halfway intelligent. Um, so we do an outline your traditional outline of Roman numerals and letters and the letters, the questions have letters. So we go A, B, C, D, et cetera. Well, in the first draft of our document, I think we were down to like AA and BB, which is the longest we've ever gone. And that was like my fault. So then I think your, your, um, email to me was like, great Scott. That was, or great Caesar's (laughs) ghost. That's a lot of questions. So I trimmed it down to T. So I combined, got rid of redundant questions and things like that. But, um, yeah, so, but, and a lot of these questions, some of them came directly from me. Some of them, um, I grabbed off of materials that I have. Uh, so, and some of them I got off of seminar questions that were developed for, um, from my AP class. So I have to give a hat tip to uh, my friend and colleague, Mr. Jamie Parr, who teaches uh, English at my old high school. Not the one I went to, but the one I used to teach at. And my period one and period eight AP literature and composition classes from this year, 27, 2018. Because um, I don't remember which questions were theirs and which questions were mine, because after a while they kind of like, you know, everything kind of blurred together. But uh, they had some really good ones. So I'm, I'm, I have to give credit where credit is due. And our first question is actually kind of one of yours. Um, I took one of yours and added it and and uh, kind of added a little bit to it, um, and which is where... Yes, listeners, I added three questions to the document. <laughs> three. But, you know, I thought to myself, well, I just have three, but I think it's okay because Tom has nearly 26. <laughs> and it worked out. And we might not get through all 20 
however many we have. Um, but the question is, like, where does Winston fit into the society? Um, is he a member party of the outer party, or is he a parole? And why is it important to know basically his place in society in terms of the social structure? Because just to just to shed a little light, this is an activity I have my students do. The inner party is it, it, the structure of the society in 1984 is basically a, a, a triangle or pyramid where the inner party is near the top, and it's the fewest people, and the paroles are the biggest part of the population. Yet the inner party holds the most power. And money, etc. And the outer party is like in the middle. So, where does Winston fit in? The easy answer is that he's in the outer party because mm-hmm. that's how it's portrayed and that's what we are told. But I have this really strong suspicion, especially as I read it the second time, that he actually grew up as a prole. And I'm not really sure how one is able to get out of that class, especially with everything that's set against the proles. My evidence for this <laughs> is because of those flashbacks or dreams that he has of his mother and his sister and just the the deprivation that they were – maybe that's not the right word. Well, I mean they were certainly deprived. Just the, the bad situation that they were in. There was no father figure, so you kind of wonder about that. But I guess you know his uh, Winston's wife ran away, so I guess it's it's similar there. And then just not being able to eat much, it just seems like he was in the lowest class. But my problem with that is I can't answer the question of how he would have possibly gotten out of that question because or that class because you have to have the education opportunity in order to actually get a job and proles aren't really offered that mm-hmm. opportunity so i'm i yeah i feel like i've i failed there trying to figure out how he's gotten out of it i honestly think that winston is almost classless it's this is a very hard question for me to answer because i think it's like he doesn't really fit in in one little area. He's clearly not inner party, though. I will say that above all things, he's clearly not inner party. But it just seems like he's he's going between the the other two classes, and I think it makes it doesn't matter that we we know which party he's in. Um, I think to a certain extent, yes, because it adds to the character and getting to know him. But I think because for me anyways, it's so ambiguous. I think it adds even more to that character and his motivations because uh, he's got the intelligence, but he also consistently looks at the proles and almost interacts with them equally, even though sometimes I think he gets annoyed at them. Like the woman that's consistent, always singing outside the window, the Mm -hmm. love shack window. And then, um, when he's questioning that one guy at the at the bar. But he also almost gives them respect because he thinks like these are the people that could turn it all around. So he very much, in my opinion, has two feet on either side and is in there. But I just really have this strong feeling that he was a prole, but I just can't answer how he got out of that situation. Yeah, well I think I think part of it um has because they don't really reveal how he became because he doesn't even know, and that's yeah. the thing. Like he, he, what, what little of we get the political past of the of the story of the society through what we read of Goldstein's book, but other than that, we don't get like an outline of history as to 
how he came to be a member of the party, the outer party. Um, we, all we have are these flashbacks that he has through dreams and he's got, there's two of his mother and his sister. At one point he does mention that he's pretty sure his father got taken away in like a purge at some point, but a lot of people did. So it was just kind of inconsequential. And then he has this very specific flashback about him like his mother having a chocolate ration and him and his swiping his sister's share and his mother telling him, you give that back to your sister, his sister crying and him running away. And when he came back, his mother and sister were gone. And the, the thing I think is important, I think can possibly answer the question. If we kind of look at the context of everything is that Winston is older than Oceania like Winston is was very young when Oceania was formed, but he is old. Whereas like whereas Julia was born under Big Brother and raised under Big Brother, but Winston has flashes to a time before Big Brother, and it's very possible that in the intervening years he was somehow chosen for that role, possibly as things were forming. You know. Mm-hmm. Like he was, if he was born into kind of the masses, the proles, but who knows like how they decided to start stratifying society at the time. And perhaps they, there was, I don't know, this is me, this is conjecture on my part. Perhaps there was some sort of program where they, they saw that he had some value and therefore they kind of promoted him, so to speak, at a, at a young age. So he doesn't remember anything really before a certain point except in these drips and drabs and these and these flashes. But I think that's why he, as you said, he's got like one foot in each world, which I think mm-hmm. is a really, really good assessment of him because there's other members of the outer party, like um, uh, Abramson, who's a, who's a guy they work with. And then Parsons, who's his, uh, his neighbor and coworker who like totally like there's, there's no connection to the pearls through that. Like, not on the level that Winston does. And if they go to the pearls, it's because they want to get something off the black market or whatever. But it's not like where he's like, you're right, he's keenly interested in some people. He talks about one old, old man at the bar because I believe that the old man, he's like, he wants to know a little bit more about the past. Sure. And this is what makes him dangerous in the eyes of the inner party and O'Brien. Like, he is basically, because the thing about Gold, Goldstein basically says is that the, the, the pearls are the ones who can who can bring about the downfall of the society. The pearls have the power because the pearls, ironically, have the most freedom. Mm-hmm. It's the outer party that are the most oppressed because the outer party are more intelligent, but they keep the pearls stupid and poor and docile. And in doing so, they don't have to really police them as much because they basically, you know, they can leave them alone to a certain extent and police them when they have to. It's people like Winston who are the danger, and he's pulling from like history here. You look at like you know. I know that like um, we like to view the Russian and the French revolutions, especially the French revolutions, like peasant uprisings, and they certainly were. But they were guided by you know they were guided by elites. They were guided by like intellectual elites, or in some cases like kind of the sub aristocracy. I mean, there were, there were people behind in the ideas behind these revolutions who were not, you know, the poor, the working, the, the, the destitute. Um, but they, 
they stirred up that sort of sentiment among these people and pointed out, you know, like they were the ones who liberated the, 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 the peasants by telling them, Hey, you're being screwed and by educating. And, and there's a line in the book until they become conscious, they cannot rebel, but they cannot rebel until they become conscious or, or something. It, it's kind of, one of those paradoxical lines. And off the top of my head, I don't remember exactly how it's phrased, but it's basically like the poles are never going to fight back unless somebody actually points out that they're oppressed. And even then it's going to take someone who's actually can convince them, you know, instead of, because they're all kind of stupid and docile and they're all kind of like, Durr. and so that, and that's what makes Winston so um, dangerous to the party is because if he's able to unlock that, which is something that starts to happen as the novel goes on, then he really actually could be a revolutionary leader. I agree. So, speaking of revolutionary leaders, <laughs> look at that segue. That's a professional yes. segue. Well done. That's a better segue than anything Shag ever did. Um, oh my gosh. Um, we've always been at war with Shag. Um <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, we've always been at war with Rob. Um, no. Um, anyway, oh. Goldstein. Let's talk about Goldstein. Emmanuel Goldstein is the object of the two minutes hate. So they have a daily broadcast of like news and let's worship Big Brother. And, and the way it's presented in both the book and the and I believe the movie is that like it's basically this two minutes of them showing Goldstein and people yelling and throwing things at the screen and and there's this it's it it builds and builds and builds like to this climax that eventually Goldstein's picture dissolves into that of Big Brothers and everybody's cheering and crying and there's there's something very like almost near sexual about it like seriously like you know the way it's described it's it, there's almost like this odd warped sort of like pleasure that everybody is getting out of it and Goldstein is supposedly the leader of the Brotherhood. Um, so why is he so hated? Why is this important? And a side question I had, is there any significance to the anti-Semitism in hating a man named Goldstein? Because Goldstein's a very, I believe it is, and this is my assumption, Goldstein's basically like a Jewish name or Jewish-sounding name. Mm-hmm. So. Well, I mean, it certainly, I wondered if it was... Uh... <sighs> Almost a satirical look at Nazi Germany. I mean, this is pretty recent after mm -hmm. uh, World War Two, so I don't know if it's you know seeing all these people and it's just like you know the hatred that sort of the the Nazis were spouting because they were told to and told that this person is a hated person. So I I, I don't know. I, I'm sure World War Two Two is still having influences even three years later. Yeah, I agree with you. And there's there's also like a bit where I think O'Brien's like manservant is um a Mongol or whatever. So there's definitely a racist undercurrent to some of the philosophy within within the society. Yeah. I think it's easy for people to come together by hating one individual. I think that it just bonds people together in a very strange way. And this is just one of those tactics, I suppose, in creating this collectivism 
in order to, to get unity with all of the people. And I think it's also a good daily test. It happens every day, right? Yes. Okay. It's also a good daily test, which is what we see with Winston's narration of controlling your face, right? And of course, thought crime and things like that. So, you know, Big Brother, if he's watching there, or anyone else, or O'Brien, is looking to see if you actually are hating Goldstein. And if you're not, then there'd be the question of why aren't you? And then you might be put on a dangerous person's list. So I think it holds, um, there are multiple purposes for this particular Goldstein hating business. Yeah, I also I also take took your point about World War Two and Nazis and their racism, and I also added um, that because one of the things that they mentioned that he was a former leader who betrayed Big Brother, and so I put like I went to uh, Trotsky was in the power struggle with Stalin, and then he became the you know he was ousted eventually the KGB or or people working with the KGB found him and killed him but like you know so i he i kind of combined all of that because and i think you're right if you personify the hate either through a specific person or a symbolic figure in the way that the germans used uh or the nazis sorry the nazis used the jew in you know, in their rise to and, and sure. consolidation of power in the 1930s and 1940s, or how even in, in the United States you had this because if you look at World War II propaganda on both sides of the of the uh, you know the both powers, you, you do have a fair amount of racism, especially toward the Japanese in this country, uh, who were known as you know Japs. You know, so you have you have that and this sort of idea, and and we see that today in in people in in the uh the people who are uh like white supremacists and or uh, and will like kind of create a sort of symbolic figure out of uh, any type of person of color or somebody in the LGBTQ community or whatever where you know it's like you know if we can create this caricature this stereotype or if we can find a very specific person to hate um, we will use that. We will use that as a symbol in our motivation. I think because you're right. If you can, if you can physically manifest what you are hating, as opposed to having it be an ideal or idea or abstract concept, people will be more likely to grasp onto that and follow you. Because our nation, or in a lot of humanity, is not very good at abstract thinking. You know, especially when it comes to emotional emotion and passion. Um, and I really want to note, too, this is really important, I think, when it comes to somebody like Goldstein or, or a Goldstein type of figure, that it's not, it's never someone who's actually directly in power over you and might may or may not have direct influence. He's either an enemy of the state or it's somebody who might be working to take something away from you. Now, in some cases, that person might actually have power or they might be seeking power, and it's your job is to hate them, to prevent them from getting that power or taking away the power that you have, you know, or or they fight against your ideals. And, and there are modern um, examples of this where, like, you know, you could flash for a while. I think you could have. I think like Osama bin Laden probably applied to this for quite a bit in the early two thousands, where it's like you know here is the this is 
this is who you really need to, you know, focus your anger at because of, you know, obvious circumstances. And we see this among political parties and, you know, the idea that, um, you know, the idea that if you go on Twitter, which sometimes I recommend and sometimes I don't, it depends on what you're, but if you go on Twitter looking for things about politics, be very aware that you're going to run across a lot of like bad memes and pictures of like one, two, three different types of people. And, um, you're going to see, and I'm trying my best to be neutral here. Um, and you're going to see like, you know, stuff directly uh, directed as hate, like directly at them, because that's what gets like a certain group of people like really riled up because like, you know, let's blame it on this person because he or she is going to try to, take away your power or whatever. And, and so there's a lot of this one. I like, and I like the idea of, I don't like, I don't like the idea of Goldstein in our society, but I like that Orwell came up with this idea in the novel because I think he really does a good job at portraying it in a way that allows us to analyze it and apply it to our own society. Could Goldstein be big brother? I don't know. And that's one of the questions, I, and one of the questions that I had toward the end, we can talk about it a little bit now, because O'Brien, not O'Brien, um, Winston asks it in Room 101, does Big Brother even exist? And O'Brien's like, yes, Big Brother exists in the same way you exist. Like, you know, it's like, it, which is a long-winded way of saying that's a stupid question, now shut up and obey. You know? But, but I, I wonder if it's like, if Goldstein's just a construct. You're right, like, Big Brother created Goldstein. It's you know you know what I mean, like or or that Goldstein or that Goldstein who wrote the book is essentially yeah Big Brother. It's yeah since the book is the one because he would know the ins and outs mm-hmm. quite honestly of yeah. of everything and the fact I, I, it's just not lost on me the fact that the telescreen basically goes from Goldstein right into Big Brother yeah and. Which is, you know, if they're winking at the camera, nobody in the audience is getting it because in the two minutes hate audience is getting it because they're too stupid to understand it. Yeah. Um, because the the official party line is that Goldstein and Big Brother essentially came up with the whole idea together, but then Goldstein, then they parted ways or they had a falling out or Goldstein betrayed Big Brother and now he's enemy he's uh, enemy of the state and public enemy number one. But I do like your reasoning there because it makes total sense that this is mm-hmm. all a facade because they need it to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think Big Brother actually physically exists? <laughs> I mean, we can skip uh, all the way down to that question since yeah. we just kind of brought it up. It's interesting. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting reading this and, and thinking about our current society and even pop culture because I always um, – you know, <laughs> something, then maybe I send something at work. It's a little scandalous. And nothing too scandalous, just like, you know, um, that something has happened. I, I usually email somebody. Uh-huh. Uh, one person told me, you know, you shouldn't email that stuff on your school email because, you know, Big Brother's watching, of course. And then you've got, <laughs> in DC Comics, you had Brother I, which is sort of reminds me of Big Brother as well. Oh, yeah. And the OMAC and things like that with Infinite Crisis. Mm -hmm. But uh, does he exist? I think he does, but it just – I just wonder in what sort of form. In what sort of form does he exist? I think, uh, yikes, what a really crazy invention 
or construct. Mm -hmm. It would have to be for everyone to just uh, sort of believe in this. So I I think that it is something, but I'm not sure exactly what it is. Um, whether it's a, I think it might be a human being. I think maybe it is Goldstein, but Brother I has taken on this whole other thing. I think it could also potentially be a construct created by those of the inner party that they think that this is the best way that they can police the lower classes and protect themselves. But I, I do think that Big Brother exists in some form. Yeah, and I agree. And like, because one of the things that that gets hinted around in the context of which, and I, we mentioned a little bit, was that, um, you know, Orwell wrote this in what forty eight, forty seven, forty eight, and it was published in forty nine after World War Two. And so the Cold War has started, but it's not it's not going to reach the height it will in the late fifties and early sixties. And essentially, the timeline is that at some point. In that period, within the within the fifteen to twenty years, but after the Second World War, there's essentially World War Three, and there's like and it's a nuclear war, and the three super states, Oceania, Eurasia, and East Asia, mm-hmm. come from that. So it's almost like that allows this to happen, and I think that you know Big Brother is a could have been it's one of those things where at one point if this were like 50 years further down the line like big brother could have been a person at one point but now he is just an idea that exists on a screen and people are persuaded to believe that he is an actually existing figure in the same way goldstein might be have been dead for years but they don't need to know that you know that sort of thing he even says i think o'brien even says that room 101 like goldstein's going to keep living goldstein will live forever or something something to that extent like they'll always have him because they need him in the same way they need Big Brother because for every you know you need an object to love you know especially in a totalitarian kind of dystopia that you have here you know that's or what is it oligarchical collectivism yes um, but uh, so you need you need somebody to. Um, love and you have to love big brother because you need to that is that is where your life is is for big brother there is no other wow you just made a rhyme i know (laughs) so moving on let's talk a little bit about some of the other concepts in the uh in the novel i'm gonna i'm gonna skip down a couple of questions to talk about things such as newspeak and doublethink and etc so newspeak as i mentioned a little earlier but i'll repeat is the term for the manipulation of language that includes the shortening of longer phrases into easier to understand terms for instance the ministry of truth becomes many truth uh, and this is also the deleting of words from the language altogether. I believe there's an example where one of the guys who works with Winston, and he loves Newspeak, and he loves the idea of language. He's like one of those cunning linguists. He is trying to edit, I think it's a sonnet or something, and he has to edit out the, edit out the word God or some reference to God, but he can't do it and have it work in terms of its like meter and rhyme. 
like you know it just it just won't fit and then he eventually gets like taken away because he's basically not doing his job correctly and those are were like words like that um but then you have double think and double think is the idea that people will simultaneously accept two ideas that are inherently contradictory without any cognitive dissonance uh, cognitive dissonance is the fact that when you have that idea that there are two, these two things exist and they're contradictory or they, there's a contradiction of terms or whatever, your brain like turns around and says, wait, something is wrong here and it actually will bother you. Double think is that you have removed that thing that bothers you and you will accept any sort of contradiction because it's just the truth. Um, so why have these come into existence? What does the government stand to gain from that? Control through language. It's all about control. I think it's, I mean, just think about propaganda and feel like, you know, Fahrenheit 451 could certainly play a part with this. Mm -hmm. And it's just censorship, all of that sort of stuff, because freedom of speech, I don't know if it ever existed in this society. Well, I guess it had to because the idea is that it's coming from how we live now and then it's in this terrible situation so I, I think it's just a way to control once again and people are unable to use certain words and they also want you to be succinct and get said what needs to be said and don't say anymore mm -hmm. yeah and then we have this sort of um, this complete acceptance of like like that you will that you can you're supposed to hold to these ideals of the party and, like, if you start to examine it, it's like you're constantly being hypocritical because, like, you're supposed to say, oh, okay, the party this, the party this, the party this, but you're you're also allowing the party to do things that they're not supposed to do or whatever, and that's where doublethink comes in. And we see that. We see that in our modern society where people people will hold fast to certain political or, or religious or, or whatever beliefs, and all of a sudden they're also advocating for people who, like, do things that are completely against those things, and yet they seem to have no problem with that. Um, and we could do a much—I mean, this is a whole. There's a whole other discussion. Once again, Don, you're welcome for another topic of questions, no answers. Um, there you go. It totally is. It's like you know, why do people who, you know, why do people who support this particular philosophy support like also seem to be excusing? fascists be or something you know like something like that where it's like this total like wait a second you're supposed to be against these people you're you're supporting um and that's what you have like in in um in doublethink and the fact that you've taken away any con inter internal conflict about that belief and the hypocrisy is like yeah you're 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 winning and then with newspeak you're right the language um i think he's also kind of making a little poking a little bit of fun at um uh government and bureaucratic speak as well Anybody who's ever worked for a government organization knows the phrase alphabet soup because every single organization seems to have an acronym for it. So if you work for the United States federal government, you could work for, you know, the FBI, the CIA, the DIA, the DEO, the D. Well, the DEO Great doesn't Scott. exist. The DEA, the FDA. Yes, the DEO. <laughs> oh my goodness. Get it together. They say the DEO doesn't exist. Yeah, where's or Chase? do they? The NSA, yeah. you know, it's just this, all these acronyms and things. And then we, and this kind of ties into a question I had as well. We have like all of these ministry, these three ministries, right? And these three slogans, and they're all paradoxes, um, or they're all paradoxical or ironic, where you've got the ministry of love 
is where you take prisoners for pain, torture, and reconditioning. Um, the Ministry of Truth is propaganda. The Ministry of Plenty deals with uh, rationing. You know, and they have other functions, but that's kind of like the basic stuff if I'm going to do it in one or two words. And then we have the party slogans. War is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. So, like, what's the fun? I mean, like, tying this into Newspeak and Double Think, like, what is the function of, like, all of this? I mean, I, I think that just to just to go on to my, um, my government thing here, I just think he's also having poking a little bit of fun at government language and and kind of a little bit of criticism and sat, satirizing of what was then kind of this Cold War terminology. Things like the idea of mutually assured destruction, that that you keep building up arms so that you can keep peace because if you launch the nuclear weapons, you're going to blow each other off the map and you don't want to do that. But let's get down to the actual kind of like philosophical let's things. That jump it, to business. Okay, yeah. Sorry. I so what, what do you think his there. like point is philosophically? Like Philosophically? You know, or, or just uh, like, about all this... Yeah. Paradox? Yeah. This whole novel is a paradox, man. I mean, it starts off, he said it was a cold day, cold, bright day in April. And, you know, you've got Victory Mansions, which is a beat-up place and certainly isn't victorious. you got Victory Gin, which is terrible. Victory Cigarettes, which constantly seems to but fall it, apart and whatchamacallit's hand, Winston's hand. But it's you've Victory. Got yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you've got, <laughs> what is it, Mr. Charrington? Is that his name? That's the, the guy in the clock shop. Yeah, the, yeah so the, Winston the thinks that, Sorry. yeah, he thinks that that shop is safe, but it's got a hidden telescreen and, of course, a rat, so it's really not safe at all. So, yeah, the whole thing, whole thing, even Winston is a paradox. But w what you're really talking about is, yeah, this stuff going on here. Well, I think it's obviously telling us <laughs> – that the party is corrupt, and in particular, it's corrupting the mind of the people because it's got this weird stuff that doesn't really make sense. However, it seems like each phrase seems to have some sort of truth with it, which is the weird thing. And even I think Goldstein starts to get at that a little bit because, you know, without war, there obviously would not be – any peace, potentially, mm -hmm. or you would have no concept of either. Without slavery, we might not know of freedom. And then maybe in ignorance, we're going to find some sort of ability to create strength. So I think pff, uh, we see the corruption of the party in the mind, but also there are some weird truths that are coming with it. As for what that means, I don't know. Well, and, and the perpetual state of war, um, which is, you know, we talk about, they, they did talk about, like, why, and he talks about why endless war is so important to the society. And it's aside from the fact that it, it allows the government to keep physical control over the populace through rationing and, and sure. starvation, it also keeps the mental control of the populace because if you have constant war, you have constant calls for patriotism. Mm -hmm. And if you build up enough patriotism and nationalism, that allows you to squash dissidents. And therefore, war is a constant state of peace among your the people you're trying to control. And with freedom, if you give the people freedom you know, kind of tied in with, if you give the intelligent people freedom, um, you know, they'll rebel, but freedom to do what you want, then you, you are not able to follow. You don't have a purpose. 
so you're you're locked into an existence that you can't seem is you know it's it's awful you know why would you have freedom when you know you have purpose and you can serve big brother mm-hmm. and then um ignorance is strength to the party it is you know keep the people stupid and we have power so yeah so i'm kind of i'm kind of approaching it from the other end but we're both we're both there and you know don't forget Big Brother is basically God, and they have replaced like all of these things. So he's he is basically, if it were a smaller group of like maybe a few hundred people, this would be a cult. You know, what I mean, so it's like kind of that mentality of like you know you you know follow what I say and is sort of like. Um, that sort of really zealous doomsday cult mindset that we see in much smaller groups. And, and we've seen in our, in our, you know, in our lifetimes, but that's, that's kind of the mentality that he's, he's putting on there. But instead of a, instead of any sort of religion, the state becomes a religion. And of course that is his criticism of like Soviet Soviet society. Cause he was, you know, he's a staunch anti, communist he like he, he was you know it's, it, at least in the bio like he he um let's see he was critical of communism but considered himself a socialist so like he's talking about the communism in terms of probably in terms of its existence within the world in terms of like stalin and you know stalin and hitler were trying to put themselves up as sort of godlike you know and and so you were following them and you follow you were doing it all for the motherland the fatherland and the party and so we we use all of this to as sort of this this locus of control that we have over you. I hope in my rambling there I made total sense. I think so. Yeah, I'm sure I did. But we've got, like I said, Winston is old enough to remember these things before they were these things. Like you know, remember the before time. But Julia can't because she's too young, and like. One of my students referred to her as a rebel from the waist down, meaning that one she, of your students. Yeah. that's what <laughs> that was in the book. Your student didn't come up with that off the top of his or her head. Yeah, that's, she 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 decided to emphasize that point. Oh, okay. So yeah, so she decided to emphasize the point that that Julia was interested in rebelling through just basically having sex. And that because her identity was so attached to the idea of an of the anti-sex league, and the chastity among, um, you know, people in the society, whereas Winston, you know, Winston, the way we see it is that he is more kind of ideologically and politically focused, and but he does he does consider sex with her a political act. So, and I'm kind of combining questions E and F here. So like. How does her attitude show the success of the party? I mean, is she a rebel? Why is this a political act for them to have sex? I mean, let's look at their let's look at their relationship a little bit. I would change it slightly and say that um, it's not because they're having sex, but they actually love each other. Mm-hmm. And they're getting enjoyment out of the sex rather than it just being something that they need to do in order to procreate. 
that does, of course, bring to mind exactly what's happening in the sexual rendezvous because she has, I mean, she's had sex with multiple people, as she has said, and she's, it seems like, not gotten pregnant. So I do, I, I feel like this world does not have, um, what are those called? It starts with a P. Um, and prophylactics? Uh, pro- yes, prophylactics. Woo! Yeah, so I feel like this world doesn't have it. Yeah. Yes, yes. So I'm not really sure how that's happening. So I think in doing that, absolutely. It's a, I mean, she, this character, in my mind, she's walking around with a big middle finger, waving in front of Big Brother with everything that she's doing. But just like any sort of child, because she is young and naive, I think she's doing it in in a way that she feels like she's doing She's just trying to be, you know, rebel without a cause. But Winston's actually trying to make changes. And I think she's not really, while she's saying she's on board with it, she just wants to be with him. And, you know, the greatest example, I think one of the best scenes to really encapsulate this, is how engrossed Winston is in reading the Goldstein book, which, poor guy, I had We're to read that. We're going to that in a minute. But... Yeah, but she is, she falls asleep. Like, she's listening to the beginning and then she falls asleep. Now, of course, you know, post-coital bliss, I suppose she was tired. But, you know, if she were really engaged and excited about this thing, I think she would have been listening to him as he talked. And I think also, right before they're arrested, he's the one who first said, I don't remember, the, it was like a three-word phrase. You remember what he said? Oh, right before they arrested where the where the house comes yeah. in. It's it's we are the dead. I think you know, he, she just calls and answers him. So it's she doesn't she's not really innovative. I think she literally is a rebel just from the waist down. You know, sex is just the way that she can rebel, but it's not in order to make changes, it's just uh flip off Big Brother. Was there another what was the other part of the question? That was about Julia. Um Was that it? Is it? Yeah, you know, I was asking, like, you know, uh, how does her attitude show the success of the party in in, in some way? Um, which I think you you pretty much pretty much got. And I think I think one of the things that I uh, I noticed about this was that yeah, I, I agree with you, and I think the party was less concerned about the fact that they were having an affair than they were with Winston, and that. You know, A, the two of them fall in love. So that's like one of the things that the reason like when he's in room 101 and they finally put the rat cage on his face and he finally says do it to Julia, that's when he's broken. Because like the whole time going into room 101, he's thinking, I'm just going to fake it. You know, I'm going to pretend that I that I'm loyal and I'm going to say all the right things. But deep down, I'll keep that little thing where it's like Julia and like I'll remember that I love Julia and then when he sells her out, and she had already done that to him, or she does that to him as well, that's it. It's done. And so, A, so they finally get him to, so he loves Big Brother, as I read at the end. But also, like, they're seeing how if he were to keep going, he actually could start influencing people. Because he's like he's like really, really weak. He's like a baby when it comes to political revolution at this point. He's like in he, he's he's his kernel of of rebellion. He has flashes of the past that are going getting brighter, they're getting brighter and brighter and brighter. Like that last dream of, of his mother and sister where he last saw her, that's a lot more vivid. And like, you know, so and and there's that dream of the golden country where it's like it's this forbidden fantasy he basically has. So there's this these ideas that like 
and you know how he's been noticing inconsistencies and he notices them more and more and he starts to kind of get awakened by Goldstein's book and he can conceivably bring Julia along with him and maybe even teach her and that's the danger that they see because they don't want anybody else but them teaching and they don't want anybody else but them indoctrinating or influencing so <laughs> Goldstein's book sure um, which you're moving along you're moving along you're moving along and all of a sudden this comes novel comes to a screeching halt with Goldstein's book and um, I was talking to my friend Jamie, who who was uh, who I mentioned at the top of the section. He even says, like, with his slightly lower level kids, like he has he summarizes them for them. He has them skip over it because he's just like it's a slog. And I agree. It's one of those things where um, something I didn't make you read, and I because I don't really read it whenever I read this novel is an appendix that Orwell put in there called The Principles of Newspeak, which is like more Goldstein. And I've read it because I had to read it like years ago and I was just like, wow, this is dry. Um, I guess we can both understand what purpose it serves in the novel, like what it's there to show us, but why put it in there in that way? Like, is there any other better way to do this? I mean, because neither of us like that section in terms of the, the storytelling methods. I don't know what other way you could potentially do it. I mean, it's good for Winston because he is learning about, I guess, party politics. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure. The only other way would have to be that we read a narration that Winston read it and then he's explaining it to Julia, which in a sense may have worked because he would probably, well, I don't know how intelligent she is, but it would be interesting to hear him almost summarize it and give it to her. I agree. That would be the only way that I think he could potentially do it. Like like his thoughts of what he was seeing and then him relating it to her. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Um, in, and I know I'm bringing up Fahrenheit again. In Fahrenheit, there's <laughs> there's two conversations. Um, one is with uh, Captain Beatty, who is Montag's uh, boss at work. Because Montag's a fireman, and his job is to, to burn books, which are illegal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, Beatty is Beatty personifies the authority. Beatty is you know Beatty's kind of the O'Brien type figure. You know, he's the, the man in charge, and he sits down with Montag at one point, and has this conversation where he basically lectures at him about why society is the way it is. And then later on in the book, Montag goes to visit this man who is a former English professor named Faber. And Faber basically gives the counter-argument. And it slows it down a little bit, but when you look at the two and you look at the two together and Montag is supposed to be this sort of Winston Smith type character who's kind of a, a little bit of a clean slate at one point and he's starting to really wake up. Um... It works. It works in a way that doesn't destroy the pacing. And I would totally do what you were just saying. Like, you know, have him explain it, summarize parts of it in his thoughts and things. And then, if you really want Goldstein's book, George, if you're really that in love with it, make it the appendix. You know, like, sure. 
you know, tack it on with the new speak thing. Cause it was like, to me, it struck me as, uh, it strikes me sometimes as something that Orwell really, really loved and he didn't want to take it out, you know? Mm-hmm. Cause it's so out of place. Well, it's not out of place, but it's, it's so true. like, boom. And you're like, <laughs> it's like you're reading a textbook. And as a, which I guess we are. Well, as a, as a politics nerd, it, it it's kind of fun to read out of context because it's just basically like, kind of outlining a society and stuff like that. So it's kind of like, like, you know, almost like reading a paper on that, but within the context of the novel and the, and the narration of the novel, it's, it's, it's really hard to get through, but building on Goldstein, because Goldstein does outline like how the society is and stuff and, and gives us kind of a little bit of the history. And, um, this was one of your questions, actually. He explains that the government of Oceania is a, is oligarchical collectivism, which is that collectivism and socialism being that idea that everybody's kind of sharing in the pot, so to speak. But an oligarchy is that the power and monetarily and, and, and politically rests in the hands of a few. So oligarchical collectivism is a paradox in itself. It's like an oxymoron, yeah. right? So there it goes. Um, this whole book. Um, can this type of society exist? Is this observation an accurate assessment? This was not one of my questions because I in no way would have asked a political question. Oh, I thought, I I guess thought you did. I'm technically, sorry. I was asking about this uh, that one time we met up for coffee and I was confused and asking things about politics. Uh-huh. Um, well, what confused me is they consistently refer to this society as socialist to a certain extent because of the ink sock business mm-hmm. and so i wasn't really sure where all this business was. i guess they believe that it is but then goldstein really just uh he basically tells them that well actually they're wrong it's oligarchical collectivism how can it uh no well i guess it's existing now it's just really a poor existence i think Anytime you want a group of people to work together, you probably shouldn't have a de facto leader or – well, I mean, you know, you kind of could, but this you've got rule of a few. And so when that happens, you've all of a sudden lost this identity of the group leading together. Yeah. Um, I think that this is his direct criticism of the Soviet Union, Oh, especially under Stalin. And then as we go in later, and maybe I've been watching the Americans too much, but um, as you go in later and you, you have a party that kind of rules and that there's a, that, that members of the party within the Soviet Union and, of course, the leader have certain privileges that a lot of the masses do not. Um, and perhaps his criticism is of that because, you know um, – if you look at like and, and I, I'm going to talk in this in very very simplistic terms, so I know that like and I'm not an economist and I'm not like I'm not very good with economics, but I know that like if you look at like Marxist communism in theory versus like what was put into practice by the Soviets, it's like two completely different things, and the Soviet the Soviet system is basically this bastardization of what Marx. Um, put forth and so I think that's Orwell like basically coming out and attacking the Soviet Union and saying like you know this is the BS that exists in this society that purports it to be you know itself to be 
socialist or whatever. And which is kind of ironic based on the number of times people in this country have turned around and said, this book's about communist, this book's pro communist or whatever, um, where he's like clearly speaking out against states like that. But he's also warning of the dangers, I think, of how it could happen even in this society where you can't consolidate power within um, among just a few. But we saw that in Animal Farm as well. I don't know if, how long it's been since you read Animal Farm. Um, ninth grade English. Yeah, the, the the idea that they start off with the phrase "all animals are created equal," but then there's the phrase they change the phrase to say "all animals are created equal, but some are more equal than others." Sure. Yeah. So he's he's he, and that was written three years before this. So he it was a belief he held um, for quite a while. Um. But could the proles like actually ever really rebel, in your opinion? Since we're talking about collectivism and power consolidated and a few of the masses having really none of it. I think that it's always possible, but they'd have to have someone lead them. And it seems like the FOP police are capturing anyone who could potentially lead them. Mm-hmm. So if that's true, and it is true... Why does O'Brien go through all this trouble with Winston and Julia? I mean, there's a point where he implies that, like, he was watching him for years. Why not take him down right away? Because he obviously has the power, right? To sure. drag him to the Ministry of Love whenever he wants. Like, why Why wait? And even Charrington could have, you know, basically sold him out when he bought that. Yeah. Journal. Yeah. It, I think it all comes down to investigation and getting to know your enemy because without having watched Winston, Big Brother, or I guess Bro Brian in this uh, sense, would not have known the best way to basically break down Winston. The rat was really what did it. Mm-hmm. Winston, even throughout the tortures and things like that, even though how, however awful that was, he still seemed to have – a little bit of that Winston charm, but it was the rat that really broke him down and betrayed everything that uh, he promised that he wouldn't do. And Big Brother or O'Brien would not have known about said rat unless he was actually watching for a very long time. So I think it was just gathering intel on the enemy and waiting to uh, best understand how dangerous he was and also how to destroy him. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, or, or and to add to that, to see is, does you know is is he a, is he alone? Does he have anybody else with him? Not just Julia, but like you know, is he part of a group? Um, how far does this go? And then you know, they strike with a moment is appropriate to them. So yeah, he plays the long con, you know, very very well, um, which kind of shows his power too. It's pretty scary. That you can, you can allow things like that because you know how you have the power to, to turn around and 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 take it when you need to. And um, the, one of the questions, and uh, this is a question you had, and I'm actually going to skip quite a bit. <laughs> let's see, let's see if I actually wrote it down. Is it about with, the smells? Uh, no, that would be the question after this. Um, so your question was, is Winston dead at the end of the novel? If what, if mm. not, why didn't he receive the bullet that O'Brien told him he would get? So the idea is yeah. that, like, 
uh, he's in room 101 and he talks about how all the men that he saw in that picture and the other people he conditions in room 101 go get so pure in their love for big brother that they eventually beg for execution so that they can die pure or so it's something like that. And yet he's not dead at the end of the novel yet. There is a reference to that bullet in the last passage where it's almost like metaphorical in a sense. So what's your, what's your, um, what's your take on this? Yeah, there, you know, he's either dead at the end of the novel and this is all some elaborate dreamscape. And one reason why I believe that might be true is because of the whole victory business. Like there's actual victory when we probably never thought that there would be any victory. And so it just seems very odd that all of a sudden the novel ends in hope. Um, so that, but then you sort of wonder, well, who's actually providing this dreamscape? Are, are we in the snow globe of St. Elsewhere or are we in the shower with that man? Who knows? Um, that was a reference to Dallas. Yeah. I couldn't remember his name. Darren? Is that his name? Bobby. Bobby. Okay. The other option is that, um, as you said, the, the bullet is metaphorical, and so he died metaphorically mm-hmm. because the thing about Winston is that his identity or what made him special is the fact that he had these thoughts that broke away from the general populace and broke away from what Big Brother wanted and he was thinking dangerous things and you know trying to potentially fix things and change things and in saying I love Big Brother unfortunately that identity is no longer there and we've stripped Winston of how we've known him and now he's a completely different person so he has sort of metaphorically died and the hope at the end is ironic because it's not hope for us, the reader. It's hope for Big Brother, because he loves Big Brother, and so it's it's a it's a pessimistic ending because there's no escaping this. Society. I feel like you're smiling right now as you're talking. Oh, I am. Um, Why are you smiling? Because, because it's it's a clear it's a clear demonstration of how they are essentially gaslighting everyone. And if you if propaganda propaganda is basically like, you know. There may have been victory, but this is propaganda provided by the state. So, you know, what's the actual extent of that victory versus the myth that you're creating and the legend you're going to create about this victory from there? There are events in our own American history that we still debate today or people still believe huge myths about thinking that it went this way or that way or that this like you know this one event happened and this all these things changed or whatever but when you really get down to the details of things it's nuanced it's complicated propaganda doesn't like nuance it doesn't like complication so it's going to distill it down to something that is really nicely packaged and appealing and there have been recent studies actually that have shown that people believe falsity more easily than they believe truth especially if the truth has nuance so it's very much like this ironic hope that he's putting into the end of the novel. It's why I love the way he does this because it's it's so well done in a way that is like he I like that he doesn't end up dead. That he's alive because it shows it makes the end of the novel scarier. If he had died, you'd hate Big Brother more, and you'd be like, you know, 
and like you'd be you hate him angry. more than this when they broken him down well, you'd be, you'd into be more, a shell of a man. You'd be more angry rather than just felt beaten yourself. And like it just there's this sense that you get as a reader of like hopelessness. It's just like it's an it, it, it empties you to see what had happened to this person, whereas he doesn't feel like a, a martyr and he doesn't go out. And then this is the other thing about um, this novel as a piece of dystopian literature is that we're so used to dystopian literature now because of the young adult dystopian genre. But a lot of those end on a positive note. There's some sort of actual victory in those and the, the, the man goes down. You don't get that here. And Bradbury ends on a on a on a note of hope. I don't know about Huxley, because <laughs> eventually I'll read that. But but you yeah. know, so there are ones that end on these notes, these down notes, and it's just like it's an it's actually kind of refreshing, because it's just it it alerts you to the really scary prospect of a society like this, and that your ragtag group of teenagers isn't going to win. I think if he were literally dead, it'd be kind of a cop-out. So, I think that he's alive. I don't know. I I wish that he would be, just so he had... I don't know. It's like a... (laughs) I, I want him to have peace, but sadly he doesn't. There's, But he has peace because he loves Big Brother. That's yeah. the power. That's that's what O'Brien is saying. This is one of the questions I have, but I'm really not going to. Um, I'm not really going to get into it. He has this rant about um, uh, nature, um, and he's basically saying like nature or the natural state doesn't exist anymore. The party is nature, and, and he has this great line of the object of power is power, and and he's he's basically kind of tearing down the totalitarian states that exist and we say we learn from their mistakes and we learn that what we have to do and again that's i mean that's some evil evil stuff because it goes beyond just like mustache twirling villainy mm. and big brother's got a nice mustache yeah so. Um, another question you had was that Orwell focuses a lot on the senses, but especially the sense of smell and why. So, and I'd like you to take the lead on this because I was trying to figure out a good answer for this and it didn't really, um, didn't really come to me as as quickly as I thought it would. Sure. I, I don't know why, but just, I really was paying attention to every time Winston was talking about these smells and I noticed that it was usually in a negative way. It was always about the, the, the sweat from the people around him. I mean, that was probably the majority of the time was always about the sweat and just terrible, awful smells, you know, that he was <laughs> smelling. And then I flipped to uh, his little dalliance in the, in the meadow, let's meadow, say, yeah. with, with, that girl who's Julia, sorry. And uh no sense. None. And so I thought, what 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 is this? Not even pleasant sense. Hmm. And I think almost it's this um oh, the other smell was of course when I think Parsons had a bowel movement <laughs> in the um in that little enclosed room and it smelt for like four hours or something like that. I think it's almost a sense of 
claustrophobia, like being stuck in this place. And I think it's just the suffocation of um, like very literal and <laughs> metaphorical in the society. And it just seems like everything's coming at you and you can't escape any of these things and you can't even escape the smells. I think that's a great way because smell is so hard to write in general. Yeah. And the idea that you're adding to that suffocation of the society and who's somebody who's becoming more aware of mm-hmm, that suffocation, mm-hmm. they're going to come hypernosically. Yeah, that's really, that's really, really good insight. Um, yeah, I don't know how much more to add to that because I thought that that's an excellent, excellent answer. So I've got like two more questions and then we'll wrap up. Um, so what is the role of fate or inevitability uh, play in this novel? Like which are predicted, which is not predicted beforehand? Like where do you see that? Um, was this fated to end the way it was or was certain events fated to happen the way they did? <laughs> Man, a lot. You know, fate is tricky. And it's, uh, gosh, you know, whether you've got a Christian worldview or not with your predestination or you're thinking about myths and like the, the fates Greeks. actually yeah. controlling everything. Yeah. You, so you can't escape it, Oedipus, that type of thing. The question is, yeah, and then you have to ask yourself. So, I mean, one of the questions is, of course, this, you know, he was always destined to get to there. So did he have any free will in, in the journey that he went on? And ooh, I was actually looking up this and someone, I don't know how believable this is, but somebody said that George Orwell didn't believe in fate. So it'd be interesting that he would actually use it in his novel. But of course, he's using a bunch of weird and bizarre things that he might not necessarily believe in because um, it is slightly satirical. I feel like he was always... Like the end point, I think, may always have been here, but the journey, I think, would always change for for him because I think, you know, if he didn't meet Julia, I think maybe the progression of events would have been slower, but they still would have happened because O'Brien, you know, he clearly had some sort of interaction with him in the past, whether that's a false memory or not. So it seems like he had already been being watched, which is, you said that anyways, or you alluded to that anyways. And even if he had never acted on any of these things, the scary thing is that the thought police know what you're thinking. And so his thoughts would have gotten him into trouble yeah yeah so i i it seems like yes the end point would have always come which is unfortunate well yeah but then you have to ask your question yourself if julia wasn't involved what would have finally broken him um because how would they have found out about the rat and everything that's true that's true i'm gonna add that you were talking about how they were watching the whole time, and then you were saying whether or not, because um, O'Brien, he like, was it a false memory that he'd had this um, uh, interaction with O'Brien? The, dark under the shadow of the trees, or something. Yeah, the place where there is no darkness, or whatever. Yeah. Like he he swore like it was, and he, I think he said it was about seven years ago that he had like it was almost like really way in the past, and like how did he know O'Brien was him and stuff? But then at one point, O'Brien mentions that they had been watching for like seven years, so. My hypothesis is that they were like 
subliminally or subconsciously feeding him these things, like perhaps through the telescreen while he was sleeping. Like they knew somehow that he was a threat and they started test. It was their way of testing that theory. And then eventually when he started to act on it, they were like, okay, our theory is or hypothesis is correct. And we're going to go ahead and go with this investigation. If it never had an effect, it was, it was a, so it was like a low risk test that they did. But that's that is me, but like completely conjecture. Where I'm just like, maybe that's. Well, that what they seems like he basically has no free will whatsoever, and it was all out of his control. Of course, it's the society that he's living in that they're that they're you know that they're that that they're suppressing his free will. That like they're. Well, I like the thought that him. he's at least making some decisions. Oh, I think he. I think he is. I mean, buying that little conch shell, it wasn't a conch shell. I, I like that moment. No, I think he doesn't he is, even know why he buys it, but oh, it's beautiful. I think he certainly has free will. And I think what, I think what, and again, this is me just kind of like trying to look at this through the eyes of like, you know, the state and Orion is that like, they know he has that free will and they want to see what he does with it. And then they're going to, then they're going to, um, and maybe they're trying to plan for it because they're trying to see how predictable he is in his behavior and predictability is different than fate. You know? Like, if I know, like, if I see a pattern in your behavior and I think I know what you're going to do based on that, that has nothing to do with predestination or lack of free will. That's you just have a predictable pattern of behavior. And I think that's the psychology they're using. They're like, okay, we're going to let him do what he wants. And he has the free will to make these decisions and buy these things and do these things. And But we have kind of, like, plan A, B, and C in place if he decides to do A, B, and C. So they're kind of they're letting it happen and then they're just kind of turning their own pressing their own buttons and turning their own screws based on on like what adventure he chooses to go on you know so i certainly mm-hmm. think he has free will i think at the end of the novel he doesn't though well no because that was their whole thing they wanted to crush it yep. so final question connecting it to the real world where do we see elements of orwell's novel in our modern day society or the modern world well i guess with post 9-11 there's more um at least we're told there's more um surveillance surveillance i can never say that word you know i'm talking about Okay, and so I, I see that there. I mean, it's obviously for for our protection, but you know, it could be abused. And I think obviously there have been some fictional <laughs> adaptations of things where people use it to. It recently happened. Oh, in Homeland. No, not Homeland. Sorry, sorry, sorry. The show that both of us have watched, House of Cards. Mm-hmm. Remember with what was his name, McMillan or something like that? Yeah. Where they were using statistical data to like figure out how people were. Yes. I mean, they were basically hacking into things. Yeah. So I, you know, yeah, I, I, I see Big Brother in sort of in in that way. As for the government, I'm hoping that I'm correct in saying that I'm not seeing this sort of thing. Uh, I do, unfortunately, see a lot of the the hate. You know, I, I think uh, it's very divisive right now. Mm-hmm. So we're not really unified in one hate. But you know, when when someone gets um, 
voted for, elected, and then all of a sudden you uh, turn around and, and potentially hold up a banner that says "not our, not my president." Um, I think we've we've created a bit of a Goldstein Big Brother situation. Uh, not saying if anyone's right or wrong. I'm just saying that just looking at that from the outside seems very similar because you've kind of you've created a, a, a hating society of the of the the government. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, certainly. And, and this certainly applies to, like, our current media where hate gets yeah. ratings. Yep, it sure does. And, and that's been true for, you know, God, 20 years with one particular network. So, I mean, it's it really, it really works on that level. I think the thing that Orwell didn't include, and I don't know if he foresaw this or not, was the role that corporations play in this whole thing? Because there really isn't a corporation or business on that level in this novel. Everything is the state. Um, and I, I mean, there are people who own businesses, but we're talking like, you know, Apple, Facebook level of like mega corporation, Amazon, etc. And I think that if you look at something like a, like social media companies and the way they, or, or other companies such as, even retail companies, the way they can track your buying habits and they can, um, there was a study, there was this great article, it goes back a number of years and it was in the Washington Post magazine, I think it was, where it starts off with the fact that this guy had started getting a lot of these coupons for baby products from Target. And he's like, I don't have a baby and his wife wasn't pregnant and it turns out his daughter was and she had been buying things and she he didn't know this and she had been buying pregnancy test or something what target had been doing was using your buying patterns to influence the coupons they sent you oh and kind of in the way that if you click on a bunch of sites in like if you go to um like for instance if i go and buy something a piece of mets merchandise from mlb.com majorleaguebaseball.com <laughs> Yes. A few days later on Facebook, there will be banner oh ads for like, but cookies, cookies in your internet browser. Oh yeah, it's insane. Yeah, that so, happened to me recently too. Yes. Yeah, so, so this is this is something that Orwell really doesn't have in here because I don't think he just it, you know this is nineteen forty eight forty nine, and I just don't think he it was something that he thought. But like you can really apply a lot of this Big Brother ish stuff and some of these things on a on a kind of bits and pieces level to things like this, like where, where you, you know, you really have to be careful of like, you know, maybe every once in a while you need to clean out your cookies, your cash, your internet browser, so that when you were visiting a site and you're going to get a pop-up ad for it or something like that, or use the incognito window or, or the idea that, you know, we track people's buying habits and viewing habits and, and, and all these different things in order to influence them in some way or another. I mean, there's so much of marketing in this that I think and you know beyond the political spectrum but I think we see into the political spectrum too and I'm glad you brought up this country because the thing that frustrated me and I didn't really express my frustration with this was the thing that started to frustrate me after a while we were having this conversation with our classes that a lot of my students went quickly to North Korea Oh. Which could be held up as an example of a type of state like this if you really look in the inside of North Korea but that's like the safe answer because it doesn't cause you to look inward and see where if it's not one for one, there's things that are very Orwellian in some of the things in and out that influence our daily lives. Even if it's not political, it might be economic. It might be social. 
So, but I'm sorry, I'm glad you brought that up too. The, it was uh, the NSA wiretapping was the big scandal at post 9/11 and toward the later part of the Bush years. I think that's where like Edward Snowden came in and stuff like that. All right, so last question. We ask this every episode before we get to our feedback. I sure. have already answered this because you know that I do. Would you teach this? I wouldn't. I think, um, you know, I struggled with this one more so than all the other ones, uh, just with, the, I guess, a sense of understanding to a certain extent, especially with the politics, because there are other things like I clearly understood what was happening. But with the politics, it's it's tough. My waters and that's not politics aren't my uh, my bag, if you will, if you're Austin Powers. And, <laughs> you know, so I would have to do some major heavy stuff, uh, you know, learning and teaching in order to, to get through this. And um, as as we were discussing it, my enjoyment level of it also lessened a little bit because I started to disagree with the things that were happening. So, no, I would not teach this, I'm afraid. See, I do. I know um, you do. And, and I would keep it on the curriculum. And I think it works very well in, um, at least in our state and perhaps in other states, because a lot of students take government in 12th grade as well. And I took government in 12th grade. And I read this originally in a politics class in, high, in college. But, but if you're taking government and you're taking English, you can apply the politics to this. Like, you know, this is a great cross-curricular piece. And I really think... Even in today's climate, not politically, but in literary climate, where we have so much young adult literature that is like, here's this dystopian thing, and this is how this person is going to overcome it. And to get the one where the hero fails is really, really important. Because I really do think that you need stories like this sometimes to see why the hero fails and what you can do as a citizen to avoid the same fate that Winston has. Like... And I think this is one of the things that I think that like I, I really get from this, where it's like, you know, these are the things, these are the warning signs, these are the things to look out for, and this is the, this is the worst case scenario, this is the eventual ending if you start to see it. Now, the problem is that Orwellian has kind of become that other Godwin's Law, where like, you know... Um, those of you who are familiar with the concept of Godwin's Law, it was an, the idea that, like, in any internet argument, like, the further on the argument goes, the probability that somebody's going to call the other person a Nazi reaches one. You know, like, eventually all things lead to Hitler and in internet arguments. And this is kind of the same way where eventually, like, when you disagree with the government or what the government's doing, somebody's going to bring up Orwell. But at the same time, it's so prevalent in our society, either from what we see or what is in our zeitgeist lexicon, whatever term, pop term you want to use. Um, I think it's a necessary text. So, so yeah, so we're going to get to feedback in a moment. Um, anything else to add about this before we, before we head out there? No. All right. Uh, yeah, so first up, we have an email from Jack Bond. And he is writing in regards to Holmes and the Hound. I was biting my tongue all through your podcast to keep from writing to suggest this or that other Holmes story. I wonder what the other one is. You think it's the uh, the woman? Possibly, Whatever that was called. Yeah. yeah. Then you, a- I can't remember what it's called. Then you asked for suggestions, so the floodgates are open. We did. Oh. I think I did at the end of the the end of the thing, oh. saying like, "Hey, if you got any suggestions for some good Holmes stories or something like oh. that, yeah." 
There is a passage in The Adventure of the Copper Beaches that touches on the setting of the hound. On a train through the farmlands, Holmes says, quote, I must look at everything with reference to my own special subject. You look at these scattered houses and you are impressed by their beauty. I look at them and the only thought which comes to me is the feeling of their isolation and of the and of the impunity with which crime may be committed here, end quote. He expands on it for further paragraphs. You make me wonder if that is the point where he worked out or consciously realized he had worked out. Earlier stories had also called him out of the city. The reason for every manor house mystery that has come out. For the stories themselves, I suppose the adventure of the Musgrave ritual or the adventure of the speckled band offer a touch of horror and come close to being the hound in miniature but i prefer jollier stories such as the adventure of the red-headed league or the adventure of the blue carbuncle okay thank you very much for the suggestions like i said i i think i mentioned that the hound of the basketballs is the only holmes i'd ever read so yeah, so I'll have to pick a couple of those. We had a pretty decent comment thread on Facebook, so I, I, I grabbed that. Um, Robert Ward, our Scholastic Book Buddy, mentioned that um, we were talking about the Nicholas Meyer uh, book written in the 70s, The 7% Solution. He said, um, although it's a pastiche and clearly non-cancerous for further, maybe he meant canonical? I'm not sure. <laughs> Um, For a a further look into Sherlock Holmes and his drug addiction, allow me to suggest a book written by The 7% Solution. I think I've heard of this book. Um, Anyway, not only is Sherlock an out-and-out addiction or an addict, but Meyer takes it a step further by making that Moriarty is no Napoleon of crime. In fact, the image of Moriarty as a master criminal weaving his web is sadly just the invention of Sherlock's fevered imagination building upon suppressed childhood trauma. And there's a film adaptation. He he provided us a link to in the Wikipedia page. Uh, he also mentioned that it's the only Doyle story that he owns on DVD or Blu-ray, and it takes great liberties, but it's a classic nonetheless. Uh, Robert also pointed out that Doyle was actually a big proponent of spiritualism, and he linked to, oh, Victorian Webb. There they are. I swear they're not getting a kickback from us. Um, And a link (laughs) to their page on Doyle and spiritualism. Um, So thank you. Uh, Gene Hendricks of The Hammer Strikes and Two True Freaks says that he's seen a lot of interpretations of Holmes. But for his money, the only one that did it justice was Jeremy Brett. He played Holmes for Granada Television and did almost all of the stories, including The Hound of the Baskervilles. If you haven't seen them, I highly recommend them. Michael Ridge said that he started listening to the podcast today and thought I'd answered some of the questions you raised because I went from the Hardy Boys series directly to Holmes. The stories of great detectives were usually narrated by Watson, with only two being narrated directly by Holmes. In the stories, Holmes berated Watson for adding too much thrilling adventure to his accounts. Watson did act as a buffer between Holmes and the clients. He was successful at this end and even married one, or was it two of the young women who came to 221B with problems? Polygamy. Yeah. I I would hope it was, like, not at the same time. (laughs) Um, In addition, he was the serious muscle in the adventures. It was always a thrill when Holmes suggested that Watson carry his service revolver in a case. Continuity matters to Sherlock Holmes fans as much as it does to some comics fans. No, continuity doesn't matter at all to comics fans. You need to shut your mouth, <laughs> sir. Of course it does. 
the Baker Street Irregulars is an international organization of clubs that have been working for over 75 years on the problems of continuity in the stories. I don't belong, but two of my college friends did. One of them was the guy who started a lot of sentences with, actually, in the canon only. Did you just try to do a nerd voice? Yeah. Okay. And I'm stuffed up a little bit, so it might work. Uh, sort of. This club, the clubs publish papers that try to find canonical answers to questions like, what is Holmes's birthday? Did he go to Oxford or Cambridge? How many times was Watson married? Apparently, simultaneously. With two women, yes, absolutely. Uh, education in 19th century England was a cash on the barrel head proposition. Most of the rural folk Watson talked to would only have rudimentary education. There were some charity-free schools established about 1820 to 1830 that taught the basic three R's, but most of the adults the doctor talked to had no education at all. The government did not provide or require any level of education. I don't know what that idiom is that he wrote in about cash on the barrelhead proposition. What does that mean? I would imagine that you had to have the money to pay for education. What's a barrel head? A gun? You put the, maybe? the, the I've, pound note on the gun? Possibly, or else you get shot? Or something like that, yeah. I, maybe? I, I'd have to, I don't know. Off the top of my head, I, I don't Where'd know. Where'd you get this from? It, it sounds like a familiar idiom, but I don't know the well, origin, and it's late. Illuminate us. Robert Ward then wrote us a Facebook message because I think he loves the screen time. I have a number of things to expand and outright undermine your Holmes discussion that I'll also format into email, but I'm so stoked to hear you talk Julius Caesar. <gasps> he rest in peace. I had to private message. If you have the time, Archangel Shakespeare, a series of audio dramas of the Shakespeare plays are an absolute must listen if neither of you have experience with their work. I haven't listened to all of them, but they are really good and I want to say Caesar was my first. The biography Caesar, Life of a Colossus by Adrian Goldsworthy is also really good, but the audiobook is more than 24 hours long. <laughs> what if you just decided to do a marathon and stay up for 24 hours and listen That's to that whole That's a lot of audiobooking. I know. I picked it up years ago because I absolutely loved covering the play in high school and just needed to learn more about the real guy. His saga of his life is so fascinating. I'm going to be expecting a lot from you two. Smiley-faced emoji. Well, yes, a lot should be expected, of course, because I teach Latin. So I guess let me know what sort of grade you're going to give me after you listen to it. And I, I enjoyed that play as well. In fact, I, I'm teaching Macbeth. As I, as we record this, um, I'm about uh, just at the beginning of Act Three, but I keep bringing oh. up Caesar. Oh wow! Because, well, I was I, the point I keep You're talking. You're brainwashed. <laughs> well, no, I've always well, I, I talked about it in the episode. I've, I've loved the play since I, I read it. And it's a long play, but I talk about how, um, and I think I made this point in the episode, like, or we both made this point in this episode, like he does not waste time getting to the assassination. In the same way in Macbeth, like, Duncan's dead by the end of Act 2, and Macbeth's king, so it's like, I, I was talking about how I kind of, how you kind of appreciate that, where it's like, he doesn't dilly-dally getting to that incident that's going to really be central to the rest of the plot, so. It's because Macbeth has a pushy wife. It's because Macbeth needs a pushy wife. <laughs> he does. Do you think Macbeth is henpecked, as they say? No. No? No. Would he have done it without her instigation? 
Um, yeah, I think he was scheming to do it. He's just, um, you know, so Henpeck to me seems like that he's being nagged. I think that she, I think she's manipulating him a little bit, but at the same time, she sees, she sees the advantage of it. Do I come asking you questions about Macbeth on a 1984 episode? Yeah, why not? <laughs> I just went over today. I love Lady Macbeth as a character, so it's oh, just absolutely. like, oh yeah, she's such a great character. So, um, so yeah, that's it. Uh, we should be, we don't have any, uh, we don't have any Caesar feedback cause it's, it's not out yet um, as of this recording, but uh, we love getting this feedback and we like the fact that we have a regular spate of feedback, which is uh, something I don't enjoy on my other shows. Uh, so um, keep this coming. Uh, we will try to, and, and thank you to anybody on Twitter who retweeted us, liked us, etc. especially Gene and everybody over at Teacher Freaks who, who really helps uh, publicize the episodes and stuff. So um you know, keep it keep it all coming. And if there are no new iTunes reviews, I checked. But if you do want to go and rate us on iTunes, um, we would really appreciate it. Uh, so we're at the end of the episode, um, and as always, I like to ask this question, or Stella likes to ask <laughs> of me, in that we are coming up on episode nineteen of the show, and that means that we're covering another book play etc so stella what are mm-hmm. we reading for next month yeah this is really the only reason why i'm on is because this moment right here well i couldn't come to a decision so i'm going to offer you two choices tom in a very vague way and you get to choose would you like to read a book about emotional adultery or a book about a uh, dysfunctional family and the author's sort of um uh sexual self-awakening Neither of these by Keith Chopin, are they? No, they are not, okay. and I won't ever choose that because I hate that book. Okay. Um, I will take B. The uh, dysfunctional family. family, and the, okay, then we are going to be reading Fun Home by Alison Bechtel. Okay. So our second graphic novel, but it comes at a good time actually because Live Arts is putting it on, and I just bought tickets so I can reread it in preparation for seeing that musical. Okay. Cool. There we go. All right. That is it for this episode. Thank you once again. Um, Don't forget, we do have our website where we post mini reviews every once in a while when we remember to do these things. And (laughs) and we also post show notes, which neither of us done. We also have a Twitter feed. It's Rec Reading Cast, R-E-Q Reading Cast. So please follow us on Twitter. Um, And until then, thank you very much for listening and take care. Remember that we're the dead ones. And we love Big Brother. Good night. Mm-hmm. Night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two, That's two true. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash requiredread with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. 
We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. Oh,